Welcome to Over in Smith, a HP Lovecraft podcast where we read an HP Lovecraft uh, story and release an audiobook of it if it isn't too boring or racist. My name is Jesse, and with me today is someone who apparently like changed at some point in their life, and everyone just disagrees about it. Faith, hey. hi, what's up? Uh, I don't know. Did you uh, become weirdly psychotic? At this point in your life, or like after this point? No, but I do have a story about this. Apparently, as a child, I did not speak to adults at all. Like, besides, like, I talked to my parents all the time. But apparently, like, my family did not think I could speak for a long time because I just never stopped to anybody <laughs> until I was like 13. <laughs> Well, uh, my <laughs> little sister did not talk to anyone who was male presenting until she was around seven. Okay, that's understandable. Not, not, not when, not when like the two people taking care of you the most. Is oh, yeah, never mind. Yeah, no, she wouldn't talk to me either. Oh no. Or 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 my uncle, who was the main person taking care of her, so she would hurt herself and not say anything about oh. it, and we wouldn't know about it until like. Yeah, I don't know what happened. I don't know what happened, and there's, like, with that, and I'm afraid to ask, but, like, yeah, it was weird for a long time. Little did she know you were not a man. Little did she know, I know. It's, it's a, <laughs> you were just a baby. Just a baby, yeah. You're just a baby. <laughs> just yeah. often, little baby. No need to be afraid. But yeah, apparently I did not speak to, like, any of my aunts or uncle. Like, I did not say a word to any of them until I was, like, 13. And they were, like, I think, like, my mom told me, like, they legit asked her, like, I thought Faith was mute. And she's like, what? No. <laughs> she talks all the fucking time. <laughs> They're like, she's never said anything to any of us. Yeah, we're at we're gonna be doing the second part of of the case of Charles Dexter Ward. Um if I'm remembering the first one right, the first one was kinda building up who this Charles Dexter Ward is. Yeah, and why, and why does he have a case? Yeah, and it's like, you know, like he definitely has something going on with his head. Yeah. We know something's going on, we just yeah. don't know when or how. Or why? Yeah, all we know is that he has apparently regressed. Well, that's what they say, is that he's... We have our theories about what's happening. Uh, but they say that he's regressed, with quotation marks. He doesn't remember anybody that he's known well. He's no longer... He was an antiquities dealer, and he's no longer interested in that. So I, um... I was watching... Well, I was watching and will continue to watch, uh... The Haunting of Blythe Manor. Oh, yes. And, you know, the, um, uh, it turns out, I've been watching a lot of, I've been watching a lot of things about a ghost takes over someone else's body stuff, Uh, apparently. (laughs) (laughs) I see how that feels into your theory. (laughs) Like, like, I wasn't watching it when we first read this, but then I was, and then I was also listening to the thing at the doorstep. Which was, yeah. which was just like you know, so someone girl bossing so hard she becomes a man. <laughs> they they girl boss a little too close to the sun. No, I think they actually girl boss exactly how much they wanted to. Just one person noticed. 
You know what? So, nice. I can't wait till we get to that one. I've been building up a collection of like, like just not ominous, like, but feel good. Just like, yeah, I'm the shit. Uh, like music, but just feel good music that is extremely ominous when you put it in that context. So I'm so excited for it. Oh gosh! Right after it is the evil clergyman. Ooh. Ooh. Well, they're just gonna talk about a regular Catholic priest. Ooh. <laughs> that's yeah. That's just which reminds me, Midnight Mass, fantastic. Also I'm by the- Mike Flanagan. Yeah, I, I realized I only watched the first episode of uh, Blythe Manor um, last year. Oh. Uh, and the guy who, uh, Raul Cooley? Yeah, Raul Cooley. Who I think Cooley. is uh, should play Mr. Fantastic, first off. Oh, hell yeah. Should play Mr. Fantastic. Second off, ridiculously hot. Like, I come know, on, right? stop it. Stop it. Fuck. Stop it. It's so oh, goddamn hot. In, it, so in Midnight Mass, he's a dad, too. Oh my god, is he sad as well? Is he yes. a sad dad? He's oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> that was my exact reaction, too. I was like, oh fuck. Th- oh fuck, Mike, Fl- Mike Flanagan. <laughs> you can't spell Coley's hot dad. Oh, he's sad, too. Oh, Jesus. I could fix him. <laughs> it's okay. Uh, I'll make you happy again. You'll never be sad again if I have anything to say about it. <laughs> I love to. He he does the dad stance where he like puts his hands on his hips and he like puts one weight on one leg. <laughs> Somebody's like classic dad stance on Twitter, and he's like, I spent months studying dads. I wouldn't let anybody on set call me anything other than dad. Call him daddy. Daddy. I call him. (laughs) Yeah. uh, I mean, uh, so maybe Haunting a Blind Manor has uh, added, has, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Has saturated your opinion of what is actually going on, but when you told it to me, I was like, actually, that makes a lot of sense. Now, also, another thing, that little girl is the creepiest thing in that show. I don't oh, care about fuck. the ghost or anything. I... That little girl, every time she goes like, you're absolutely marvelous, I'm just like, she's gonna fucking kill everyone. Actually, every single time. <laughs> the little boy was the creepiest for me. No, no, no. The little boy was just acting like a little shitty boy. Oh, that's no, true. that girl is acting like th- a ghost that's maybe, about to murder everyone. I think maybe more in hindsight, the little boy is really creepy. No, yeah, no, like, like even even after the, I'm sorry, we're spoiling. Even after the incident happens, I'm not going to say exactly, but we figure out why he's acting that way. I'm just like, yeah, he, okay, cool. I just that's like, the thing dude, that makes sense. Like you're possessing like an eight year old boy, and you want to flirt with like an adult woman. That's fucking creepy. But no, but also the other thing though is he's just acting like a shitty boy. I guess so. Like he's not acting outside the ordinary of just a shitty boy. Oh that yeah. little girl is a. She is a one hundred year old ghost, and she's going to fucking murder everyone. And, like, I'm still convinced of that, even though I know what's going on. And it's just, every single time she talks, I'm just like, you talk like a Victorian 
governess. Yeah. Like, stop it's almost it. almost like, that's what this story is about. I just hate it so much. It's almost like Every that's t- what Turn of the Screw is about. It's about Victorian governess. Yeah, but still, like, I just, I remember, I think the reason why I turned it off the first time, she's like, you're absolutely marvelous, miss whatever. I'm just like, no, fuck off. Like, immediately. <laughs> I don't know why. I don't know why. The scariest she's- thing about this child is that she's British. <laughs> she's British unironically, which is... This <laughs> is really just, like, the worst curse. <laughs> I don't know. Being French unironically Oh, really no, works. you're right. That's way worse. <laughs> yeah. But, you know. <laughs> oh, boy. But, yeah, uh, so... Um... Yeah, so but, Dexter Ward is not acting like himself. Uh, I'm 100%. He's, his uh, ghost is inhabiting his body. Yeah, and we have a theory that it is... Uh, so the person, like, studying the case of Dexter Ward, like, looked into what, like, may have driven Dexter Ward crazy before. Uh, like, because he was apparently looking into his ancestry and discovered that um the man who was his great great grandfather was not actually his great grandfather it was this other dude who was greatly reviled by his community so much so that his wife changed her name back to her maiden name which is a lot cooler telling gas is such a much better name gas is fucking rad okay okay you know how i've been flirting with the idea of changing my name Tillinghast would be very good. No, no, Art Tillinghast. Oh, fuck yeah. Oh, that sounds rad as shit. That does sound rad as shit. Oh, that's so good. Uh, part two. So, part two, chapter one. An antecedent and a horror. Joseph Kerwin, as revealed by the rambling legends embodied in what Ward heard and unearthed, was a very astonishing, enigmatic, and obscurely horrible individual. So what is he talking about Ted Cruz? <laughs> Damn. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. Why am I why do I say that? Uh <laughs> <laughs> Nice. <laughs> okay. Uh, he had fled from Salem to Providence, the universal haven of the odd, the free, and the dissenting, at the beginning of the great witchcraft panic. Being in fear of accusation because of his solidary ways and queer chemical or alchemical experiments. He was a colorless-looking man, about 30, and was soon found qualified to become a freeman of Providence, thereafter buying a home just north of Gregory Dexter's, about the floor of Only Street. His house was built on Stamper Hill, west of Town Square, in what later would become Only Court, and 1761, he replaced this with a larger one on the same site. You know, a uh, colorless-looking man is a real, I feel like, is a good way to get around, uh, <laughs> like, filters that, you know, block you saying white. Yeah. A colorless-looking man. Colorless, he's just fucking transparent. <clears throat> you know, it probably has something to do with his alchemical experiment. Yeah. He figured out how to make sunscreen. Or he figured, or he's just like freebasing arsenic all the time, so he has that like Victorian. <laughs> oh shit! Vic- oh, God. Also, also, I sent a video of this in the group chat, but 
a lot of people lately, just because like emo revival stuff is popping up again, I guess because it's 20 years old now. Yeah. Which is, eh. <laughs> but, but like, I am still so attracted to that style. I know, right? It was good. I, it was good. You know, first off, it looks good. Second off, like, god damn, I just love it so much. It's it's very much. That being said, uh, I did really like the uh, remaking the My Immortal. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm just gonna say, those fits look pretty good. Yeah. I'm just saying. Like, all you're doing is just like a slightly heightened e-girl thing at this point. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. So. Yeah. The 666 on the ass, though, is just like, <laughs> just <laughs> chef kiss. I love it. Highly appreciate <laughs> That's that's what Joseph Curlin was wearing. That's why nobody liked it. <laughs> he was, he's, he wearing was wearing, bo- he's wearing booty shorts that say six six six. No, on the back. no, no. Even worse, he has like the the weirdly enough like the he has like the the e boy look. Uh, but he's also wearing a ratty um, Nightmare Before Christmas hoodie that has like a <laughs> thumb holes in the thing <laughs> that like they like bit out, and it's uh and. Uh, he's wearing a chain with a chain with a padlock as a necklace. Oh my god! And everyone's just like, "I know you're, you're just wait, you're in a pump pump pop band, pump sorry, <laughs> are you pop in punk a band? ska band? <laughs> no, 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 they're in a pop punk band, and they're they also have Discord kittens. So, oh my god, yeah, like no, uh, you know, that's why they hate them. Just like uh, you're just, yeah, I would hate, I would hate. Wait, and you're a straight edge? Oh, fuck. What? Uh, I hate this hypothetical person. <laughs> See, we have to have a reason to hate Joseph Kerwin, and I'm just creating the worst person I could think of. <laughs> it's all pretty bad. And I think they have some incel views. No, no, they can't. They're they're definitely dating people way too young. Oh, that's yeah. arguably worse. <laughs> yeah, but like, I don't know, because I'm trying to think. Like, they're that friend that, like... They're in a centrist. They're, like, aggressively centrist. Ugh. Like, they're just like, I don't care. Both sides are wrong. They're that friend where, as you get older, you realize that they only date, like, people younger than 21, and you're like, that's not good. Oh, oh so, so in the time frame, someone pointed out that in the time frame of when Days and Confused came out in the 90s... Yeah. To now, it would have been set in early 2000s, which basically would have meant that uh, Matthew McConaughey's uh, character would have been in a pop punk band. Oh my god, we're just <laughs> describing Matthew McConaughey's character from Dazed and Confused, but in the he, early 2000s. That's it. That's exactly what he would be like. He has just enough charisma that he could convince people he's not a creep. Yeah. Yeah. Oh god. Yeah, oh my god, Joseph Kerwin, get the uh, fuck out of fuck here. Fuck off, Joseph Kerwin, there is a reason you got run out of town. Now, the first odd thing about Joseph Kerwin was that he did not seem to grow much older than he had been on his rifle. He engaged in shipping enterprises, purchased wharfage near Mile End Cove, helped rebuild the Great Bridge in 1713, and in 1723 was one of the founders of the Congregational church on the hill. Did he maintain that nondescript aspect of a man not greatly over 30 or 35? As the decades mounted up, this singular quality began to excite wild notice. 
But Kerwin always explained it by saying he had come of hardy forefathers and practiced a simplicity of life which did not wear him out. Um, I unfortunately have the same curse as him. My family lives forever, even if we treat ourselves like shit. Oh, no. And I hate it. I I have the curse where everybody in my family is very baby-faced. It, also, if I shave, I, I look like I'm 15. Yeah, if I, um, if I cut my, like, I usually during summertime wear my hair as a bob, I cut it short, and I look in my teens. Yeah. And people are like, you should be happy, like, you're just gonna look young forever. It's like, I don't want that. I'm fine aging normally. I'm tired of getting fucking carded all the time. <laughs> I don't want to live through the water wars. <laughs> I will, if I reach 40, I will start making up reasons why I look young. Well, you are a witch. It's true. So you can I'll just be say like, that. But I'll be like, yeah, I ate a pine cone every week from when I was 20 until I was 30. <laughs> just like a whole pine cone. Like, <laughs> bit into well, it like an apple. <laughs> so depending on who you're talking to, you could be like, you know, uh, you know, Planned Parenthoods. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm catching your drift. I'm, I'm, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know. <laughs> Let's just say I used to go there once a month and then, uh, get a facial. <laughs> have you, uh, have you ever heard of a uh, monogogs or ass wings? <laughs> um, I'm I'm one of those. Yeah. <laughs> Dear God! <laughs> uh, oh, have you watched The Witch yet? No, I haven't. Oh gosh. Okay. There's. Uh, I want you to think of this conversation in a certain scene later on <laughs> in that movie. How simplicity could be reconciled with the inexplicable comings and goings of the secretive merchant, with the clear gleaming of his windows at all hours of night, was not very clear to the town folk. And they were prone to assign other reasons for its continued youth and longevity. It was held for the most part that Kerwin's incandescent mixing and boilings of chemicals had much to do with his condition. Gossip spoke of the strange substances he brought from London and the Indies on his ships or purchased in Newport, Boston, and New York. And when Old Dr. Jebus Borwin came from Rehoboth and opened his apothecary shop across the old Great Bridge at Sign, Unicorn, and in Mortar. There was ceaseless talk of the drugs, acids, and metals that, that the tacturn recluse incessantly bought or ordered from him, acting on the assumption that Kerwin possessed a wondrous and, and secret medical skill many sufferers of various sorts applied to him for aid. Though he seemed to encourage their belief in a non-committal way, and always gave them an odd-colored potion in response to their request, it was observed that his ministrations to others seldom proved a benefit. At length, when over fifty years had passed since the stranger's advent, and without producing more than five years' apparent change in his face and physique, the people began to whisper more darkly and meet more than halfway that desire for isolation, which he had always shewn. Um, he's actually a, uh, patron. He actually has an undying patron. Oh, shit! Um, and he's level six, so every <laughs> every ten years he's alive, it's actually one. Oh, shit. He ages. 
Oh my god. Yeah. So that 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 matches it. Yeah. So he just <laughs> he just never really he I, doesn't really do a lot of the way that, so that I I know that queerly does not mean what then what it did now, but I still can't stop reading it as that. <laughs> well, they said the queer gleaming of his windows at all hours, and then they describe it more. I'm picturing that TikTok if the uh hot like from outside a hotel and like zooms into a window and it's the uh RPG lights like flashing. <laughs> And you hear Caramel dancing muffled <laughs> coming from it. That's what I'm imagining. You're just hearing Lady in Red blast. <laughs> with the with the, the rainbow lights. <laughs> Private letters and diaries of the period too, a multiple of other reasons why Joseph Curran was marveled at, feared, and finally shunned like a plague. His passions for graveyards, in which he was glimpsed at all hours and under all conditions, was notorious. On Patuxic Road, he had a farm where he generally lived during the summer, and to which he would be frequently seen riding at various odd times of the day. His only visible servants, farmers, and caretakers were a sullen pair of Narragansett Indians, the husband dumb and curiously scarred, and the wife of very repulsive cast of continent. And the lean to of the house was a laboratory where most of the experiments were conducted. Curious porters and teamers who delivered bottles, bags, or boxes at the small rear door would exchange accounts of the fantastic flasks, crucibles, and furnaces they saw in the low shelved room, and prophesied in whispers that the closed mouth chemist by which they meant alchemist, could not be long in finding the philosopher's stone. The nearest neighbors to this farm, the Finners, a quarter mile away, had still queerer things to tell of certain sounds which they insisted came from the Kerwin place at night. Hey, don't kiss, don't tell. Come on. <laughs> yeah, damn. <laughs> like, just, you know, just lay, like, Politely knock and say, hey, you know, we've been kept up by noises that night, you know, so maybe, you know, be polite about it. Yeah, damn, you don't have to just show up and be like, y'all fucking too loud, keep it down. Yeah. <laughs> also, it... what about this Philosopher's Stone shit, too? Yeah, like... damn. Just walk in, there's like a glowing crystal in the corner of the room, you're like, what's that? He's like, nothing. You're like, it's a nice disco ball you have there. All of a sudden, you hear the Final Fantasy battle music happen. <laughs> God damn it! I wasn't ready for this! <laughs> it turns out time to crystal is pretty quickly with him. <laughs> I'm in fuck, I don't have any Phoenix down! I wasn't planning for this. You accidentally skipped all seven dungeons before me. <laughs> <laughs> how, how you walked around them I don't know <laughs> meteor <you're dead. laughs> you haven't even seen my second form oh god fuck this <laughs> and then there's a dragon form but there's another form after that <laughs> there were cries they said and sustained howling 
and they did not like the large numbers of livestock which thronged through the pastures, for no such amount was needed to keep a lone old man and very few servants in milk, meat, and wool. The identity of the stock seemed to change from week to week as as new droves were purchased from the king's town farmers. Then, too, there was something very obnoxious about a certain great stone outbuilding with only high, narrow slit for windows. Uh, they're, they're the things that archer, archers shoot at. <laughs> or, you know, or like the, you know, it's hard to see if someone's looking at you outside. You know, yeah, like, it's do the pervert they... windows. I was gonna say, do they think this dude is fucking his livestock? I think that they're thinking that they're killing a yeah. lot of his livestock. Like, you just, I mean, like, you just need, like, one sheep. Listen, I'm only a, I'm, I live in a state right, right next to Wyoming. I know. <laughs> which, okay, which Midwest state, like, just recently outlawed bestiality? Oh, like, fuck. within the last Let couple of years. Um, I know what you're talking about, too. One sec. I want to say it's, like, because I remember it being very recent, because there's, like, more abortion laws in the state than there is, like, against, like, fucking an animal. Well, uh, a lot of states had laws, had more laws against same-sex marriage than they did against bestiality. Yeah. But one, like, recently just outlawed it. Just outright. Because it was completely legal before. And, like, I know it was a Midwest place. It was Kentucky. Was it really Kentucky? In 2019. Oh. You know what? Governor yeah, Matt, that makes- Governor Matt Bevin signed a bill outlawing sex between people and animals. You know, that makes sense. Oh, it was <laughs> on my makes- birthday, too, March 28th. <laughs> well, that's good to know. Uh, happy birthday to you, I guess. <laughs> Thanks, Kentucky. <laughs> you know, Matt Bevin. Blevins did one good thing. I think it, I'm trying to remember, I think it was either, I think it was Arkansas, it was either Arkansas or Alabama, it was an A state, has like more, had had before it became a federal, federally protected thing that you, that same-sex marriage became a thing, that they had more laws against same-sex marriage than they did against both marrying your family members, like direct incest, and bestiality. Like, both of those things, like, you could marry your first cousin, and you could fuck a sheep. And, like, there was no law against it. <laughs> no. Like, you can't, you no. can't marry somebody of the same sex as you. Well, you probably couldn't fuck a thing that's the same sex as you either. Like, that's against God. <laughs> you can't. Like, completely. Yeah, you can't. That's so gay. <laughs> God, ugh. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> Great bridge idlers likewise had much a say of Kerwin's townhouse and only court. Not so much the fine new one built in 1761, when the man must have been nearly a century or old, but the first low grambled roof with the windowless attic and shingled sides, whose timber he took the particular precaution of burning after its demolition. Here there was less mystery. It is true, the house which the lights were seen, the secretiveness of the two swarthy foreigners who comprised the only manservants, the hideout, indistinct mumbling of the incredibly aged French housekeeper, and a large amount of food 
seen enter the door which only four persons live, and the quality of certain voices heard in muffled conversation at the highly unseasonable times all combined with what was known of the Autuxic Farm to give the place a bad name. I have a theory. Uh, I think that Joseph Kerwin is actually three kids in a trench coat. Yeah, he's he's three kids and like around <laughs> around like, you know around this time he started getting like that like insatiable hunger yeah. that teens get. Yeah. yeah. Like that's why he's looked young for so long. That's why they need so much more food. <laughs> yeah. Also, we did get gambled roofs. <sighs> Just make a make a Lovecraft drinking game. It's like take a shot every time gambled roofs are mentioned. I think the only one we won't get a gambled roof in, and we might be wrong. I might be wrong about this. Is at the Mountains of Madness. Oh shit! I don't know if we got one in Color Out of Space. I don't remember either, honestly. <laughs> it's but like you know. Quite a bit. Quite a few of them have it, though. In choicer circles, too, the Kerwin home was of no means discussed, for as newcomers had gradually worked in the church and trading life of the town, he had naturally made acquaintances of the better sort, whose company and conversation he was well fitted by education to enjoy. His birth was known to be good, since the Kerwins, or the Kerwins, of Salem, needed no introduction in New England. It developed that Joseph Kerwin had traveled much in very early life, living for some time in England and making at least two voyages to the Orient. His speech, for when he deigned to use it, was that of a learned and cultivated Englishman, but that, for some reason, or other Kerwins did not care for society. A Wilkes never actually rebuffed a visitor. He always reared such a wall of reserve that few can think of anything to say to him, which would not sound inane. So, wait, I don't know if I quite got that. So, okay, he did not care for society. So, so basically, he would do, like, the polite version and be like, yeah, we should definitely hang out, but, you know, I'm real busy. He, he pulls the, the Midwestern passive-aggressiveness. Like, yeah. he doesn't actually want people over, but he's like, yeah, come over for, uh, for some casserole. It'll be great. And then he just looks really sad the whole time. So that one Midwest mom that I follow that makes all the, um... Oh, yeah, the... The Minnesota salads <laughs> yeah. that aren't really yeah. salads. Um, they had one where they released at, like, three in the morning because they couldn't go to sleep and they just had the berries and cream. <laughs> like, salads... <laughs> And they're just like, you know what, I'm just gonna make, you know, that sounds kind of like, I can make, I can definitely make a salad out of that. Oh my god. <laughs> you could, yeah. <laughs> also, apparently she's a teacher, and when the, uh, when the kids start pulling out TikTok lingo thinking that she doesn't know it, she's just like, oh, they won't know. <laughs> they, they don't know. They know nothing. Apparently they found out pretty quickly, though. <laughs> That's like whenever I see uh, somebody that's been on Tumblr for a long time see something repeat itself on Twitter, and they post that screenshot from um, uh, uh, Chronicles of Narnia where Aslan is like, "Do not cite deep, <laughs> deep magic to me, witch. I was there when it was written." 
<laughs> see, like, I don't see. The thing is, is I am so I've I follow so many people who are like really deep Tumblr users in like the early two thousands oh, that I get a lot of the memes. Like, there's so much buck wild shit has happened on Tumblr. <laughs> like, like every single time I see someone like like say like i get so many bitches or something i always think of like the three the, the three weed smoking girlfriends like every single my time. three weed smoking girlfriends that are definitely and, and real I, and i always and, and like and i always think when it's wendy and it's wendy here all the time but like man it's fucking wendy it's fucking wendy <laughs> I had that. I had that up for the longest time in my office. It's windy. <laughs> that fucking fox is. It's perfect. It's it's just perfect. Oh, it's fucking yeah. windy. <laughs> there seemed to lurk in his bearing some cryptic, sardonic arrogance. As if he had come to find all human beings dull through having moved among strangers. And when Dr. Checkley came from Boston in 1738 to be the rector of King's Church, he did not neglect calling on one of whom he soon heard so much, but left in a very short while because of some sinister undercurrent he, he detected in his discourse. Charles Ward told his father when they discussed Kerwin one winter evening that he would give much to learn what that mysterious old man had said to the spriting, brigantly, brigantly, brig, sprite. <laughs> that makes sense, but also there's too many letters for that. <laughs> the English language is a fucking joke. Yeah had said to the sprightly cleric, but all the diarists agreed concerning Dr. Checkley's reluctance to repeat anything he had heard. The good man had been horrendously shocked, and could not recall Joseph Kerwin without a visible loss of the gay urbanity which he was famed. More, more definite, however, the reasons why another man of taste and breeding avoided the hot the Haughty Hermit. In 1746, Mr. John Merritt, an elderly English gentleman of literary and scientific leaning, came from Newport, the town which had so rapidly overtaking, which was so rapidly overtaking it, and standing, and built a fine country seat on the neck in what now is the heart of the best residential section. He lived in considerable style and comfort, keeping the first coach and livery servants in town, and taking great pride in his telescope, his microscope, and his well-chosen library of English and Latin books. Hearing of Kerwin, as the owner of the best library in Providence, Mr. Merritt early paid him a call, and was more cordially received than most other callers at the house had been. His admiration for his host's ample shelves, and which, besides the Greek, Latin, and English classics, were equipped with a remarkable batteries of philosophical, mathematical, and 
and scientific works, including the Paracelsus, Acola, Van Helmont, uh, Savanes, Glambor, Boyle, Borhav, Beecher, and Stahl, led Kerwin to suggest a visit to the farmhouse and laboratory, whether he had ever invited anyone before. And the two drove out at once in Mr. Murat's coat. Uh, by the way, um, for people who don't know, Newport, Rhode Island is very fancy upper crust. There's a bunch of mansions there. Um, we went there once and like you could tell most of them, like the people that own them don't even live in them. They just have them because like n- their lawns aren't taken care of. So they just have this big fancy mansion sitting in Newport, Rhode Island that they never go to. Well, I mean, how else are you supposed to show up your Yeah, wealth other than have a house that you never fucking live in, but you pay for. <laughs> Don't get me wrong, a lot of them are very beautiful, and they're mostly historic buildings, but goddamn. <laughs> Mr. Merritt always confessed to seeing nothing really horrible in the farmhouse, but maintained that the titles of the book in the Special Library of Thaumaturgical, Alchemical, and Theological Subjects which Kerwin kept in the front room were alone sufficient to inspire him with lasting loathing. Perhaps, however, the facial expression of the owner in exhibiting them contributed much to the prejudice. The bizarre collection, besides a host of standard works, Mr. Murray was not too alarmed in envy, embraced nearly all the Kambalists demonologists, and magicians known to man, and it was a treasure trove of lore in doubtable realms of alchemy and astrology. Hermes Trismagonus, in the Mesnard edition, the Turba Philosophrum, Gerber's Liber Investigationis, and Artiferus's Key of Wisdom, Kabbalistic, Zohar, Peter Jammy's sets of Arbertus Magnus, uh, Raymond Lully's Ars Magna and Ulma and Zetsnir's edition, Roger Bacon's Thesaurus Chemicus, Flood's Calvis Alchemy, and Trithemius de Leopold de Lapid Philosophical. Crowding them closely, medieval Jews and Arabs were represented in profusion, and Mr. Merritt turned pale when upon taking down the fine volume, Kanuna Islam, he found it was, in truth, the forbidden Necronomicon of the mad Arab Abdul Azared, of which he had heard such monstrous things whispered some years previously after the exposure of nameless rites in the strange little fishing village of Kingsport in Providence of Massachusetts Bay. I like how he's like shocked that there's a lot of medieval books by uh uh Middle Eastern people when in the medieval times like uh Middle Eastern like universities were like very big and established and wrote a lot of books. <laughs> but they're brown people, yeah. so it's scary. <laughs> it's also probably, like the medieval It's probably a fucking book on constellations. They're like, yeah, this one uh there's one, it looks like a bear. There's a spoon also, in the like, sky. Did you know that? 
Also, like, the whole idea of a medieval medieval Dark Ages thing is, like, a complete myth. It's just, like, we were still learning stuff, and, like, the Renaissance didn't come out of nowhere. It's just kind of a build-up of what's happening in the medieval ages. You know? There's one book, and, like, he sees it. It's, like, it's written in, like, a... And Parsi script. And he's like, oh god, what evil does this hold? It's actually just like how to build a bookshelf. <laughs> Oddly enough, the worthy gentleman owned himself most impalpably disquieted by the mere detail on the huge mahogany table which lies face downward a badly worn copy of Boralus, bearing many cryptical marginalia and interlineation in Kerwin's hand. The book was open about its middle, and one paragraph displayed such thick and tumultuous pinstrokes beneath the line of mystic black letter that the visitor could not resist scanning it thorough. Whether it the nature of the passage underscored, or the feverish heaviness of the stroke, which had formed the understanding, he could not tell, but something in that combination affected him very badly and very particularly. He recalled it at the end of his days, writing it down from memory in his diary, and once trying to recite it to his closest friend, Dr. Checkley, till he saw how greatly it disturbed the urbane rector. It read, The essential salts of animals may be so prepped and preserved that an ingenious man might have a whole Ark of Covenant in his own study and raise the very fine shapes of an animal out of its ashes at his pleasure, and, and by the like method from celestial salts of human dust, a philosopher may, without any criminal necromancy, call up the shape of any dead ancestor from the dust wherein to his body had been encumbered. It was near the docks along the southerly part of town, however, that the worst things ever muttered about Joseph Kerwin. Sailors were superstitious folk, and the seasoned salts, who named the infinite sun, slave, and molasses slops, the rakish privateers, and the great brigs of brown, Crawfords and Tillingas, all made furtive signs of protection when they saw the slim, sexually young-looking figure with its yellow hair and slight stoop entering the Kerwin warehouse in Bloom Street, or talking with the captains and supercargo along the long quay where Kerwin's ships rode restlessly. Kerwin's own clerks and captains hated and feared him. And all of his sailors were Marlboro's riffraff from Martinique, St. Estes, Havana, or Port Royal. It was in the way the frequency which the sailors were placed with inspired an acutest, most tangible part of the fear which the old man was held. A crew could turn loose in town on shore leave, and some of his members perhaps changed with this errand or that. And when resembled, it would be almost sure to lack one or more men. That many of the errands concerned the farm on the other, on the Paltuxic Road, and that 
few of the sailors that ever returned from that place was not forgotten, so that in time it became exceedingly difficult for Kerwin to keep his oddly assorted hands. Almost inevitably, several would desert after hearing the gossip of the Providence Wharfs, and their placement in the West Indies became increasingly great problem for the merchants. In 1760, Joseph Kerwin was virtually an outcast, suspected of vague horrors and demonic alliances, which seemed all the more menacing because they could not be named, understood, or even proved to exist. The last straw may have come from an affair of, of the missing soldiers in 1758, for in March and April of that year, two royal regiments on their way to New France were quartered in Providence and depleted by an inextricable process far beyond the average rate of deterioration. Rumors dwelt on the frequency which Kerwin was wont in talking with the red-coated strangers, and as several of them began to be missing, people thought of the odd conditions of his own seamen, which would have happened if the regiment had not been ordered on no one could tell. Meanwhile, the merchant's worldly affairs were prospering. He had a virtual monopoly on the town's trade in saltpeter, black pepper, and cinnamon, and easily led any one shipping establishment save the Browns in the importation of brassware, indigo, cotton, wool, salt, rigging, iron, paper, and English goods of every kind. Such shopkeepers, such as James Green at the sign of the elephant in the Cheapside, the Russells in the sign of the green eagle across the bridge, and Nightingale at the frying pan and fish near the new coffee house, depended almost wholly on him for their stock. In his arrangement with local distilleries, Narragansett dairymen and horse breeders, and the Newport candle makers made him one prime exporter of the colony. Ostracized though he was, he did not lack for civic spirit of a sort. When the colony house was burnt down and he subscribed handsomely to the lotteries, which the new brick one still standing, of its, of its parade and in the old main street, was built in 1761. In the same year, too, he helped rebuild the Great Bridge after the October Gale. He replaced many of the books in the public library consumed by the Colony House fire and brought heavily into the lotto which gave muddy market parade and deep-rutted town street their pavement of great round stones with a brick footway or causey in the middle. It was about this time he also built a plain but excellent new house, whose doorway was, which was still such a triumph of carving, when the Whitefields adherents broke off from Dr. Cotton Hill Church in 1743 and founded the Deacon Shadow and founded the Deacon Snow Church across the bridge. Kerwin had gone with them through his zeal and attendance was soon abated. Now, however, his cultivated piety once again as if to dispel the shadow which had thrown him into isolation, and would soon begin wreck his business fortunes, if not sharply checked. See, guys, I'm not doing necromancy. I 
love Jesus. Love him. Which everybody knows necromancers don't love Jesus. Yeah, so, I mean, I still think he's a- I still think that this man took over oh, Dexter Ward- or Charles Dexter Ward's body. Just the, uh, the passage that, um, that one dude read out of his book makes me think it as well. That perhaps, uh, Charles may have gone through his work, found how to summon an ancestor, and then that ancestor happened to be Joseph Kerwin. And they took over yeah, his body. Yeah, who then took over his body. Definitely. Yeah. Part 2, Chapter 2. The sight of this strange, pallid man, hardly middle-aged in aspect, yet certainly not less than a full century old, seeking to emerge from a cloud of fright and detestation too vague to pin down or analyze, was at once a pathetic, a dramatic, and contemptible thing. Such is the power of wealth and surface gestures. However, those came indeed at a slight abasement of the physical aversion displayed towards him, especially after the rapid disappearance of his sailors abruptly ceased. He must likewise have begun to practice an extreme care and secrecy of his graveyard expeditions, for he's never caught at such wanderings, while the rumors of uncanny Sounds and maneuvers of his Paltuxic farm diminished in proportion. Ah, uh, yes, he he it, read a reanimator. <laughs> yeah. He learned from them. Yeah, you gotta get them fresh. Gotta get them fresh, but, and like, you also like you can't fresh. be obvious about it. <laughs> You're gonna yeah. get kicked out of med school if you are. <laughs> his rate of food consumption and cattle replacement remained abnormally high, but not until modern times until Charles Ward examined a set of his accounts and invoices in the Shepley Library. Did it occur to any person, save one embittered youth perhaps, to make dark comparisons between the large number of Guinea slaves imported until 1766 and the disturbingly small numbers for whom he could produce bona fide bills of sales either to slave dealers of the, at the Great Bridge or to the planters of Narragansett country. Certainly, the cunning and ingenuity of the abhorred creature was uncannily profound. Once the necessity for their exercise had become impressed upon him, and of course, the effect of all this belated mending was necessarily slight, continued to be avoided and distrusted, as indeed the one fact of his continued air of Youth at a great age would have been enough to warrant, but he could see that in the end of his fortunes would be likely to suffer. His elaborate studies and experiments, however, they had been apparently required a heavy income for their maintenance, since a change of environments would deprive him of, of the trading advantages he gained. It would not have profited him to begin anew in a different region just then. Judgment demanded that he patch up his relations with the town folk of Providence so that his presence might no longer signal for hushed conversation. Transparent excuses of errands elsewhere in a general atmosphere of constraint and uneasiness. 
His clerks being now reduced to the shiftless and impecunious residue, whom no one else could employ, were giving him much worry, and he held to his sea captains and mates by a shrewdness in gaining some ascendancy over them. A mortgage, a promissory note, or a bit of information very pertinent to their welfare. In many causes, Dyrus had recorded with some awe. Herwin shewed almost the power of a wizard and unearthly family secrets for questionable use. During the final five years of his life, it seemed that only indirect talks with the long dead could have possibly furnished some of the data that he had so ghibli at, at his tongue's end. Yeah, he is definitely summoning, like, the ghosts of dead people. Also, he definitely sacrificed a bunch of slaves. Oh, definitely. Definitely. When he says uh, his clerks are now reduced to the shiftless and, uh, that no one else would employ, I'm imagining, like, his bookkeeper, like, he's like, how are you doing today? He's like, uh, I forgot to tell you I'm illiterate. That's why nobody else were hired me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what any of this means. He's like, God damn it, nobody else will work for me. You can't read the newspaper so you don't know how scary I am. <laughs> About this time, the crafty scholar hit upon a last expedient to regain his footing in the community. Hitherto a complete hermit, he now determined to contract an advantageous marriage, securing a bride some lady whose unquestionable position would make all ostracization of his home impossible. It may be that also had deeper reasons for wishing an alliance, reasons so far outside of the known cosmic sphere that only papers a century and a half after his death caused anyone to suspect them. But of this, nothing certain ever could be learned. Naturally, he was aware of the horror and indignation which any ordinary courtship of his would be received. Hence he looked about for some likely candidates upon whose parents he might exert a suitable pressure. Such a candidate he found not at all easy to discover, since he had a very particular requirements in the way of beauty, accomplishment, and social security. At length, his survey narrowed down to the household of one of his best and oldest ship captains, a widower of high birth and unblemished standing, named Duty Tillingast, who, only daughter Eliza, seemed dowered with every conceivable advantage save prospects of an heiress. Captain Tillingast was completely under the domination of Kerwin, and consented after a terrible interview of his copelade house on Powers Lane Hill to sanction the blasphemous alliance. Eliza Tillingast at that time was 18 years of age and had been reared as gently as reduced circumstances of her father permitted. She attended Stephen Jackson's school opposite the courthouse parade and it had been diligently instructed by her mother before the latter's death of smallpox in 1757. In all arts and refinements of domesticated life, a sampler of hers worked in 1753 at the age of nine, may still be found in the 
Rhode Island Historical Society. After her mother's death, she kept the house, aided only by one old black woman. Her arguments with her father concerned the proposed Kerwin marriage must have been painful indeed, but of these we have no records. Certain it is her engagement to young Ezra Whedon, second mate of Crawford Packet Enterprise, were dutifully broken off, and that her union with Joseph Kerwin took place on the 7th of March, 1763, in the Baptist Church, in the presence of one of the most distinguished ensemblage which the town could boast, the ceremony being performed by the younger Samuel Windsor. The Gazette mentioned the event very briefly, and most surviving copies of the items in question seem to be cut or torn out. Ward found a single intact copy after much searching in the archives of a private collector of note, observing with amusements the meaningless urbanity of the language. Monday evening, last Mr. Joseph Kerwin of this town merchant was married to Miss Eliza Tillingast, daughter of Captain Duty Tillingast, a young lady who has real merit, added to a beautiful person, to the grace of the connubial state, and perpetuate its felicity. Yeah, that is very meaningless. Yeah, that, that's, yeah. <sighs> that, that is almost nothing. That's just, yeah, I've never read a sentence with that many words that was so empty. <laughs> the collections of Doofy Arnold letters discovered by Charles Ward shortly before his first reputed madness in the private collection of Melville F. Peters, Esquire of George Street, and covering this in a somewhat antecedent period, throws vivid light onto the outrage done to public sentiment by this ill-assorted match. The social influence of the tilling gas, however, was not to be denied, and once more Joseph Kerwin found his house frequented by person whom he could never otherwise had induced to cross his threshold. His acceptance was by no means complete, and his bride was socially the sufferer through her forced venture. But at all the events, the wall of other altricism was somewhat worn down, and his treatment of his wife, the strange bridegroom, astonished both her and the community by, dis- by displaying an extreme graciousness and consideration. The new home in Olney Court was now wholly free from disturbing manifestations, and although Kerwin was much absent at the Altuxet farm, which his wife never visited, he seemed more like a normal citizen than at any other time in his long years of residence. Only one person remained in open enmity of him, this being the youthful ship officer whom whose engagement to Eliza's Tillingas had been so abruptly broken. Urza Whedon had frankly vowed vengeance, and though of a quiet and ordinarily minor disposition, was now gaining a hate-bred dogged purpose, which boded no good to the usurping husband. When they said, uh, um, 
Where is it? Found his house frequented by persons whom we would never otherwise have induced to cross his threshold. I was thinking, like, did he forget that, like, now his wife has to live with him? <laughs> like, she yeah. comes, she, like, shows up at their house, and he's like, what are you doing here? She's like, we live together now. <laughs> We're married. He's like, ah, oh, fuck. I forgot that's part of it. <laughs> and he, he got in into society the way that most weird kids do. You make a friend, and you hang around with him long enough, and people just get used yeah, to you. Yeah, at least it sounds like he was nice to Eliza. You know, I think he might have been ace. Like, he's like, you know what? We don't have to do anything. Here's some money. Just, like, do whatever you want with your time. I don't care. Well, he, he does have a child, though. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I, that, I feel yeah. like that was kind of, at that time, an expectation but he could have just like jerked off into a test tube. Exactly. Like, Yo, just put this in. Just put this in. Yeah. Exactly. He does have a laboratory, so I wouldn't doubt it. It's like, here's a turkey baster. Like, if you want to use it, go ahead. If you don't, I'm not gonna judge you. <laughs> I can make new. I can make some new stuff in like three minutes if you give me enough time. <laughs> so like, you know. <laughs> uh. So. Just imagine her like, okay, honey, we, we've been married for like two years. We gotta have a kid. He's like, okay, where do we find one? She's like, no, we we have to make it. He's like, okay, how? Uh, we got flour and <laughs> some salt. I know for sure. And she's like, we have to have sex. He's like, what? <laughs> Normally, I find children on slave ships. I don't think we could have one of those as our children at this point in time. I could time. just find one. She's like, no, we have to, like, make one. I'll go to the town over and steal one, and everyone will think it's ours. <laughs> yeah. Remember back in the day when you could just go over a couple towns and have a completely new yeah, life? Yeah, isn't that funny? That, that literally yeah. happened in Reanimator. They moved to a small town, and no one ever found them again. On the 7th of May, 1765, Irwin's only child, Anne, was born, and was christened by the Reverend John Graves of King Church, of which both husband and wife became communicants shortly after their marriage in order to compromise between their respective congregational and Baptist affiliation. The records of his birth, as well as that of the marriage, two years before, was stricken for most copies of the church and town's annals, where it ought to appear. And Charles Ward located both with great difficulty after his discovery of the widow's change in name, to appraise him of his own relationship, and to engender the feverish interest which culminated in his madness. The birth entry Indeed, was found very curiously through correspondence with the heirs of the loyalist Dr. Graves, who had taken with him a duplicate of records when he left his pastorate at the outbreak of the revolution. Ward had tried this source because he knew that his great-great-grandmother, Anne Tillinghast Porter, is Episcopalian the ones that don't believe? No, I'm thinking of Calvinists. No, Episcopalians are like Catholic light. Yeah, I was thinking of Calvinists, the ones that be like, "You will, you're, hey, you're, 
You're a piece of shit anyway. Why are you even trying? Yeah, no. You're going to hell, Calvinists you piece of shit. are the reason why we have the Protestant work ethic. Fucking Calvinists. God, they're a piece of shit. They were the ones that, like, you can't dance, you can't do anything fun. You're a piece of shit. Fuck off. Now give us 10% of all your earnings, you piece of shit. <laughs> it's it's the church for the all the sick. Oh, <laughs> for all the for all the bad boys who need to be punished. <laughs> <laughs> damn <laughs> oh god damn I don't I don't want to make Calvinists sound sexier than they no, are no they are not sexy at all I think that was the whole point shortly after the birth of his daughter an event seemed to welcome with a fervor greatly out of keeping with his usual coldness Kerwin resolved to sit for a portrait this he had painted by a very gifted Scotsman named Cosmos Alexander. You know what? I'm stealing that name. I'm going to be called Cosmos Alexander from that now on. That is the raddest fucking name. Cosmo Alexander. Fuck, that's a good that's name. That's a good-ass name. Um, a then-resident of Newport. Since famous as the early teachers of Gilbert Stuart, the likeness was said to have executed the likeness was to have been executed on a wall panel of the library of the house of only court but neither of the two diaries mention, uh, mentioning it gave any hint of the ultimate of its ultimate disposition and at this period the erratic scholar shewed signs of unusual abstraction spending as much time as possible as he could on his farm on the Altescate Road. He seemed, he seemed, it was stated, in a condition which suppressed excitement or suspense, as if expecting some phenomenon, ex as if expecting some phenomenal thing on the brink of some strange discovery. Chemistry or alchemy would appear to have played a great part, for he took his house, for he took from his house to the farm a great number of his volumes on that subject. His affections for silver interests did not diminish, and he had no opportunity uh, and he had no opportunities for helping but he lost no opportunity and he lost no opportunities for helping such leaders as Stephen Hopkins, Joseph Brown, and Benjamin West in their efforts to raise the cultural tone of the town, which was much below that of Newsport and his patronage of the liberal arts. He helped Jackson Jekylls find, uh, found his bookshop in 1763 and was thereafter his best customer, extending aid likewise to the struggling gazette that appeared each Wednesday at the sign of Shakespeare's head. In politics, he ardently supported Governor Hopkins against the Ward Party, whose prime strength was in Newport and his really eloquent speech at Hacker's Hall in 1765 against the setting off of the Northern Providence as a separate town with a pro-war vote in the General Assembly did not do anything. <clears throat> and his really eloquent speech at the Hacker's Hall in 1765 against the setting off of a Northern Providence of a separate town with a pro-war vote in the General Assembly did more than any other one thing to tear down the prejudice against him. 
But Ezra, who watched him closely, sneered cynically at all the outward activity and freely swore it was no more than a mask from the nameless traffic of the blackest gulf of Tartarus. The resentful, young, uh, the resentful youth began a systematic study of the man and his doing whenever he was in port, spending hours at night by the wharves in a dory in readiness when he saw the lights in Kerwin in the Kerwin warehouses following the small boat which would sometimes steal quietly off down the bay. He also kept a close watch as possible on the Paltusic farm and was severely bitten by dogs by the old Indian com- couple loosed upon him. Uh, yeah, that's in a part two. <sighs> so, Damn! Uh, we are, you know, we're building up a case <laughs> for why this uh, Joseph Kerwin was always a piece of shit. Yeah, he had slick back hair, lots of steaks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Specifically those things. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing else. <laughs> yeah, whenever he held a baby, like, that baby knew he was a piece of shit. <laughs> All the dogs barked. No dog in town liked him. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, now some of the, some people used to be a piece of shit, not him. Yeah. Yeah. Now, that being said, what do you think of this part? I think we're this is this is feel like uh building up the case against the people of the rats in the wall. Right? Yeah. This is like a um this feels like uh you know when rats in the wall when they just said like, Hey, your ancestors were terrible and that's why it was legal to murder them for a while. But they didn't like they didn't really like uh what's the word I'm looking for? Extrapolate on that at all. They just kinda left it there and the protagonist was like, you know, that's good enough for me. This is like explaining why it was legal, why the church was like, you know what, thou shalt not kill, except for these people. <laughs> yeah. This is like explaining, like, thou shalt not kill, except for Joseph Kerwin. Fuck that guy. Pretty much. You're allowed to throw that man into the sea with a pair of cement shoes. Let's see, he's a slaver, he's like a hundred years old, and he married like an 18-year-old. <laughs> To be fair, like, I don't want to say product of his time, but that was kind of like the, what you did <sighs> back then. Actually, uh, well, yeah, you usually would get married at about, like, 1920, but you actually wouldn't have kids until you were, like, 24, 25. Yeah. Typically. Um, because usually you guys, like, both of you were in some kind of apprenticeship, and you needed to finish that before you could have kids. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this uh, has been interesting. Yeah, fuck this guy. <laughs> yeah, this this guy. This guy fucking sucks. He's just a rich asshole that's a hundred years old. Yeah, he's everything that I hate: uh, old, white, rich, <laughs> a man. Yeah, racist. What? Well, um, I don't know. Uh, how do we end this? I know how we end it. Um, let me get the yes, thing open. Go ahead, read the thing. I don't have anything else to say about it. Yeah, it seems like a real piece of shit. That's mostly it. Um, okay, well, this has been Over in Smith, and you are the irreplaceable gash in the fabric of reality. 
your keening static howl is like no other, and if it faded from the abyss, the void that would remain would be unfillable, and the mansions of silent would forever fill with our lament. Bye! Bye! Oh!